Welcome to 45 Forward, the beginning of the rest of your life. Each week, host Ron Roel and his guests discuss topics of interest to many listeners in their 40s and beyond, including retirement, caring for aging parents, health, lifestyle, and more. It's time to think ahead to the next half of your life, and we'll help you plan it with ease. Now, here is Ron Roel. Welcome, everyone, to another edition of 45 Forward, where our mission is to help you, our listeners, from Los Angeles to Long Island, make your second half of life better than the first half. I'm talking today with Mark Miller, who is a journalist, podcaster, and author, a nationally recognized expert who writes extensively about trends in retirement and aging. He is the editor and publisher of retirementrevised.com, which has been honored as one of the nation's top retirement planning websites. And among those in his field, Mark has a distinctive perspective, which you'll learn about shortly. First, before I introduce you to Mark, I'd like to talk a little bit about the evolving state of retirement planning today. Certainly, our view of retirement has changed a lot since Social Security was created in 1935. It changed a lot since my father worked as an engineer in the aerospace industry in the 1960s and 70s. And it's continued to change through the decades of my own career with the disappearance of many traditional pensions, the shift of 401k plans, and meanwhile, advances in healthcare and medicine have added years to our lifespan. But this longevity bonus, as it's called, has also made retirement planning more complicated. Understanding entitlement programs like Medicare and Social Security has presented us with more options and questions. And we're faced with an array of challenges, the uncertainties of future healthcare coverage, housing transitions, caregiving for our parents and ourselves, and savings that may not last as long as we do. So let's start off on some of these retirement planning issues and how we might revise some of our own thinking. So let's meet our guest, Mark Miller. Welcome, Mark. Great to have you on the show. Hi, Ron. Thank you so much for inviting me. So, Mark, before we start uh, digging in, why don't you tell us a little bit about your professional career and how you became interested in writing about retirement and aging? Sure. So I come out of a background, most of my earlier career was spent in uh, journalism and covering business and finance. But about 15 years ago, I was working um, at a division of the Tribune Company here in Chicago, the Chicago area where I live. And I was in a division, which is the company that publishes the Chicago Tribune. And um, I was working in a division that was interested in new startup ideas. And that was around the time I was turning 50. And I had this idea that there might be an idea, uh, a possibility for a publication and website focused on kind of, you know, 50 plus life. Uh, the reason for that instinct was I found myself thinking about it and um, it seemed like all my friends were starting to talk about it. Gee, what am I going to do when I get in my mid 60s? I don't know if I'm going to want to do a traditional retirement or what I'm going to want to do. And so that was sort of the spark of it. But I uh, pitched to the company and we did, in fact, create a magazine and website focus in that area that uh, only lasted a few years. But I was very convinced that it was a, a, you know, sort of a valid information niche to be in, even if the uh, specific idea we were pursuing didn't work out. And so uh, left the company shortly thereafter to pursue an independent career covering retirement and, uh, you know, started out with that sort of focus on kind of life reinvention and the like, which is where the the name of my website, Retirement Revised, comes from the whole idea of revising or rethinking retirement. But it's kind of expanded uh, quite a bit from there into the more of the sort of the personal finance dimensions and uh, as we'll discuss, uh, coverage of programs like Social Security and Medicare and the like. So a more kind of holistic view. But I, that was how I sort of first uh, just stumbled into it. Like a lot of ideas is sort of based on uh, 
a personal observation that then you sort of tested as a, a marketplace idea. The funny thing about it was that after sort of the, let's say the editorial idea occurred to me and I went off to sort of do the research for what the business case was for launching a magazine, I was sort of stunned to see what a, what a good business idea was because, you know, we were looking at pretty rapid aging of the country and, you know, that the baby boom age wave was just beginning at the time. But I, I could see that there was a good 20 to 30 year ramp of, of, of people moving into this life transition who were going to, and like any life transition, when you make them, there's an information need, you know, whatever that is, whether it's, you know, going off to college or looking for your first job, buying a home, getting married, you name it, these sort of having children, they, all these sort of life transitions, there's an, an information need to fill because people are doing something that they haven't done before. So that was really the the genesis. Yeah. That's great. That's great. Yeah, I'm, I'm totally uh, on board with you. I mean, I think that uh, certainly um, you can see the 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 age wave is is inexorable, and you know it's not a it's not really a you know a pig in a python uh, sense of you know baby boomers moving through. It's like well, baby boomers move through, and then Gen Xers on top of them, and then you know millennials after them, and Gen Z, and it's just going to keep going and going. Um, so I think that's absolutely true, and I and I think the other thing, as you pointed out, was that I think that, you know, the way our lives are, are structured in this, you know, in the culture is that you, you do go through a basic, you know, uh, paces, you know, through school and through college and then your first career and then your marriage. And then, but then when you do reach, you know, around, you know, your forties your and fifties, that, that structure kind of ends <laughs> and you need to start figuring that things out, you know, um, in, in a different kind of way. Yeah. And I think, you know, um, a lot of people talk about sort of the idea of reinvention of retirement or people say to me all the time, well, isn't, isn't retirement over? Isn't that concept dead? And, you know, it's really not. I mean, people do still retire now. People are some, some segments of the workforce are working longer than they had working past sort of the traditional retirement ages. This tend to be, you know, higher educated, white collar and professional kind of creative class people, not, not people working on factory floors who generally are pretty happy to be done with, with that by the time they hit 60 or so. So there, there is that trend of working longer, but there's also sort of a blurring of the line of what, what does it mean to be retired or not? People who maybe are no longer working full-time, but perhaps are doing some kind of gig work or part-time work, or perhaps they're doing volunteer work. They may be not working for pay, but you know are still very much engaged. So there has been a lot of rethink of of what it means. And now the pandemic has kind of swung a whole new light on, on all of this. So there's not a short, never a shortage of interesting things to write about you know, right. on this beat. Right. Right. So let's talk a little bit now about, um, you know, how does your work uh, differentiate from other people in the retirement planning area? Well, I guess I would say this, that I have a focus that's somewhat different from a lot of the people on this beat and that um, in that I tend to focus heavily on social insurance, which means Social Security and Medicare primarily. And by contrast, I think the field in terms of people who cover retirement tends to be very investment and retirement saving focus. I think one of the reasons for that is that a lot of the uh, the press that covers this is New York based, so it's Wall Street. And so it just tends to be somewhat Wall Street centric. But the reality is that uh, retirement saving is really of importance. Uh, if you look at sort of where who's able to save and who has retirement saving of any 
significance. It's maybe one third of households. You know, if I want to be really generous, I'll say 40%. And for everybody else, it's uh, the main thing in retirement is going to be Medicare and Social Security. And even the phrase social insurance, a lot of listeners are probably going, what the heck is that? Well, right. social insurance is, you know, is um, a phrase that used to be in common understanding, and it refers to these insurance programs, Social Security, Medicare, that, um, that, that protect us against, against risk in retirement. And the word social just means that they are public programs. They're things that we fund and do together as a society. And, you know, Medicare, I think probably everybody understands is insurance. It's health insurance. I don't know if everybody understands Social Security as insurance, but in an important sense, it is because it's insuring you against the risk of lost income. You know, we, we tend to think of Social Security as really a retirement program, and it, and it is, it's, but it's also a program for people with disabilities, for example, or for widows. You know, if you are married and a spouse dies early, uh, survivor benefits for children. So it is a program that, broadly speaking, ensures against sudden, unexpected loss of, of income. And when you retire, that's a, that maybe is not, not always an unexpected loss of income, but it's a loss of income nonetheless. So I tend to think of Social Security that way. So, you know, I think that's one way that I differentiate what I do. Um, you know, it's I'm less interested in, not that I don't write about investing, I, I do write about 401ks and, RM, and IRAs and all the ins and outs of that stuff. But I don't, I'm not somebody who ever is writing about investment picks or invest in this stock or that stock or this fund or that fund. In fact, I'm a pretty firm believer that for most people, the best thing is to be invested in passive, low-cost um, total market index funds or exchange-traded funds. And it's really all about contributing regularly, watch your costs, watch your balance, meaning, you know, the mix between what you have in stocks and what you have in fixed income investments and the like. Uh, so I'm not somebody who spends a lot of time, you know, in the sort of the investment pick area. Right. I focus more on these other areas I just mentioned. Plus, I do a lot of writing about, about careers, even though the beat is retirement, because as you mentioned, we're talking about people who are in the ramp towards retirement. So, you know, if you're in your 50s, your early 60s, or what have you, you're still working or trying to keep working uh, as you move towards retirement. So, that that late career uh, phase is something of great interest to me. And I think it's actually one of the most important determinants of of a successful retirement is, you know, what that ramp looked like. You know, a a great concern right now is um, with millions of people losing their jobs in the pandemic at older ages, Right. You know, what that's going to do to their retirement prospects. Right, right. Let's just uh, step back again to look at Social Security because, uh, you know, I think that, you know, this is, uh, I, I think you're absolutely right that, that um, you know, Social Security and Medicare, you know, are really two really critical pillars of our retirement, whatever that looks like. And I think we tend to be a little, man, a little overlooking, not to maybe dismissive, but just sort of assume it without paying quite enough attention to it. So I think that. Certainly, there's been a lot of talk about, you know, um, well, Social Security is not nearly enough to maintain you through your retirement years. And will the, you know, what's going to happen to Social Security? Is it going to you know, go under? So talk a little about that in terms of, um, you know, what do you see? Because I know you write about policy as well in terms of, yeah. your long, and uh, what do you see in terms of the, the solvency of Social Security? Yeah. And let me just quickly address the question of, you know, is it enough to live on? You know, Social Security, it's interesting. It's um, 
the benefit formula for Social Security is progressive in the sense that it returns a higher percentage of your pre-retirement income uh, to lower income households and middle income households than it does to high income. So the you know the the critical issue in you know the the critical is it enough question is just the way it needs to be measured as how much of your pre-retirement income are you able to replace in retirement? That's the essential way to think about maintaining your standard of living in retirement. Right. So Social Security, you know, if you're a lower income person, might replace 40, 45% of pre-retirement income. And it might probably something in the high 30s if you're high income. So is that enough? You know, no, probably not. On the other hand, if you if you're fortunate to have two Social Security incomes coming into a household, if you're married, you know, that's that's you know gonna gonna beef that up. But that's the essential rationale for needing to save for retirement is that, you know, you want to have something beyond Social Security. But, you know, unfortunately, in many cases, it's really all that's available because a lot of middle and lower income households have just not been able to save for a variety of reasons. You know, the, to your, the second part of your question, yes, you know, we're constantly hearing that Social Security is, is headed for financial insolvency, a financial cliff you know, and, and we should all be worried about that. And um, so I think it's important to sort of separate myth from reality here. It is true that Social Security has a financial problem, a, a long range uh, financial uh, sustainability problem in, the, in this sense. You know, uh, we talk about the Social Security Trust Fund and that's kind of a geeky sounding term, but the best way to understand the trust fund of Social Security is this. It's like a checking account. So the the tax dollars that come in from our payroll tax payments go into the checking account, and then the government writes checks off that account to pay benefits. So for the last 20 years, the checking account has been really full. There's, you know, and there still is, uh, I believe it's about $3 trillion, $3 trillion sitting in the checking account. The problem is that as the boomer age wave accelerates and also as there are fewer younger workers coming into the workforce as a ratio measured against people who are drawing benefits, that checking account's gonna start to be drawn down pretty rapidly. And so the issue is that around 2034, the checking account's gonna be empty. And at that point, there'll be sufficient revenue coming in the door from current tax payments to meet about 80% of the promised uh, benefits, the, the scheduled benefits. So if nothing else is done, we're looking at a rather dramatic um, you know, cut in about 20% across the board in everybody's benefits, which would be a disaster really for, for many people. And that's an across the board immediate cut. So that's the concern. Um, the good news is there are lots of ways to fix that. Mm-hmm. And you know, it can be done Basically, you have a couple of several ways to go. You can either add new revenue into the system, you can cut benefits, or you can do some combination of the two. And, you know, what gets done in the end is going to depend on the shape of um, the political balance in Washington. And also, very importantly, there's a timing question, namely, you know, when do we get to around to fixing this problem between now and 2034? Um, That's hard to predict. But the one thing I'll say about it is this is, well, I'll say two things about it. One is the closer you get to 2034, the more likely it is that the solution is, is only new revenue and not benefit cuts. And that's right. just simple math because the closer you get, you can't achieve the, the savings you need through benefit cuts. There's just not enough time. And the second thing I'll say about it is that the appropriate solution is more revenue. The last thing we need to do right now is 
make Social Security less but less generous. The ways the ways you would do that would be, for example, by raising the retirement age. There's a couple other ways that mm-hmm. it can be done. But that's so. The, the the good news is that there are clear ways to fix it. Um, a very clear majority of the American public across all different uh, political and demographic um, segments favor that approach. They f- they favor keeping Social Security strong and are you know in favor of of paying more if, if it's necessary to keep the program strong. So I, I think something will happen. I, you know, it's really hard for me to imagine any member of Congress who would be willing to go home to his or her district and explain a, why they allowed a 20% cut in social security benefits to happen to constituents. Right. That's right. pretty hard to imagine. Yeah. 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 It'll, it'll, it'll go across both uh, parties and any party there is that it, it, it's still a very popular program yeah, and, um, there's you know there's different ways to do this. You could do it with a higher payroll tax. That's right. one way. But you could have a very incremental, small increases every year for a you know ten or twenty year period. Other ideas that are floating around the, out there include things like um, hot taxes on high net net worth individuals or taxes on stock transactions like a Wall Street tax. Uh, another interesting idea would be to allow the trust fund to invest some small portion of its holdings in equities. Right now, the trust fund is restricted by law to yeah. investing only in uh, in fixing in yeah. bonds. There's a special type of bond that right. they mark. Let's let's hold that thought, and uh, we just need to take a break in a, in a few seconds. But uh, when we come back from the break, let's pick that up again and also look at some issues about what things people should do in terms of figuring out when to take Social Security. So uh, we're going to take a quick break, folks, but don't go anywhere. We'll be right back with more from Mark Miller. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. A brave heart is anyone with the courage to be of service to others. If you have that courage, then Bravehearts Radio with Brian Reinbold is for you. Even if you aren't yet, you'll want to still tune in to get inspired, create your own story to share, and change your life for the better. Listen to the stories of service and courage shared by amazing guests and your input, too. Listen for Bravehearts Radio, Mondays at 4 p.m. Eastern Time and 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Remember, doing good anywhere does good everywhere. Want to play the ponies and win? At Winning Ponies, we go inside and behind the scenes with the top jockeys, trainers, and handicappers. The Winning Ponies Radio Show with John Inglehart, racing's regular guy, is the perfect complement to the Winning Ponies handicapping website. Catch us live every Thursday at 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific on the Voice America Variety Channel. Win prizes just for calling in. You are listening to 45 Forward. To reach Ron Roel or his guest on the program, please send an email to ron.roel at gmail.com. That's ron.roel at gmail.com. Now back to 45 Forward. Welcome back to 45 Forward, where we're talking with Mark Miller, nationally recognized journalist, podcaster, and author who writes about trends in retirement and aging. Mark is the editor and publisher of retirementrevised.com, where you should be sure to check us out, where he has many resources on the site, articles and a newsletter, which you can subscribe to, retirement revised guides, books, podcasts. Um, so um, 
with that, let me uh, just, we were before the break, Mark, we were talking about uh, Social Security solvency, and you were suggesting that there are many ways to fix it before it, it becomes insolvent. And the main one being to figure out um, uh, how to, you know, add revenue into the system. But even assuming that we're going to fix that, and I can't imagine we're not going to find a way to do that politically. Um, even so, um, there are still decisions that people need to think about in terms of when to take Social Security. It's not quite the passive thing. You know, I think if you're a few years away, you're not thinking about it, but there are decisions to make about how and when to take it. Talk a little bit about that. Sure. Well, the fundamental thing to understand about the claiming of your benefit, a retirement benefit, from a timing standpoint is this, that uh, it all revolves around what's called your full retirement age, which is the age at which you're entitled to receive 100% of the benefit that you've earned over the course of your career. And um, you can file as young as age 62, and you could wait as long as uh, till age 70 to file uh, if you chose to. Um, and depending when you do that, you'll receive more or less um, on a monthly or annual basis. So, for example, let's say you started at 62, you know, the earliest age, you'd receive a reduced benefit for the rest of your life. It'd be 25% lower. Uh, by waiting past that full retirement age, you start to receive what's called the delayed retirement credit, which is equal to 8% for every 12 months that you delay. And the credits are available till age 70. So, at that point, you know, there's no reason to, to delay. And, you know, in terms of when to do it, I, I just would say there's no one size fits all answer. It's a very personal decision. Um, you know, you may need income coming in the door at age 62. As a general point, you know, it's, it's beneficial to delay it at least somewhat, uh, you know, wait till your full retirement age or later, but there definitely could be reasons why you might not do that. Uh, an example would be, well, the fundamental question here is, if you're going to delay, how do, you know what do you do to meet living expenses while you delay? If you aren't, you know, if you're no longer working full time, uh, if you're able to work longer, that's you know a great way to fund a delay. Uh, another way to fund a delay in benefit claiming is to draw down from savings, which may sound somewhat counterintuitive. I know a lot of people sort of their eyebrows go up when I say this, but uh, actually, if you think about, let's say you are no longer working. Um, and you haven't filed for Social Security, that means you're going to be in that given year uh, in a much lower tax bracket. And if you have dollars, if you have funds accumulated in a tax-deferred account, an IRA or a 401k, that's a good year to be drawing dollars down because those funds, those drawdowns get taxed as ordinary income in the year that you draw them. So, you know, a lot of experts say that, yeah, that can be a good strategy, you know, take a couple of years to live off of, of at least some of your accumulated tax deferred savings while you, while you wait. Um, but there, there's a lot of variations on this. A lot of times when I comment on this, people, what they hear is you, you got to wait till age 70. And I don't really say that at all. I just try to lay out what the benefits can be of a delayed claim. Because if you delay past 66 and you're getting 8% higher you know, income as a result of that, that, that kind of return is pretty tough to beat. Yeah, I, I I agree, but it, you know, as you said, it depends on your 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 situation. You know, you may need you know the income sooner for various reasons. So it's it's hard unless you really take a good 
you know, hard look at your situation to just right. make a blanket decision. But And I think, you know, it's for married couples, it's also very important to have mm-hmm. a coordinated uh, strategy between the two of you. Um, you know, because of the way that Social Security works, there is a, uh, a spousal benefit that's available right. to couples. Um, you know, when it may be that one partner could uh, delay a bit and, the, and another files, you know, to get, begin bringing in some income. You know, the, the spousal benefit allows one partner to claim a benefit as high as 50% of the benefit at full retirement age of his or her spouse, so long as the spouse has already claimed benefits. So, for example, uh, let's, let's think of a couple in which one spouse is 66 and the other is 63. So the older spouse, let's say that older spouse has a full retirement benefit of $2,400 and the younger spouse could expect a full benefit of $1,500. If they, if they both file right now, uh, rather than at full retirement age, they could be foregoing as much as $60,000 in, in lifetime benefits. And if as compared with waiting until 70, more than a quarter million dollars lifetime. So it's a big deal. And these kind of coordinated strategies can make a lot of sense. There's a lot of, um, there's some interesting uh, tools and advisory services out there that can help people kind of run their numbers. I, I think it's a good idea to, rather than just take a cookie cutter advice from someone like me talking on the radio, mm-hmm. to, do, to actually run your numbers. You know, there are services out there where you can plug in your primary, your, your full benefit amount, which is called the primary insurance amount, and that of a spouse and you know, these services can run scenarios for you and say, well, if you do this, it'll mean this. And if you do, yeah. And then life, life expectancy figures into that too. So it's a lot of different factors. It's worth running the numbers and taking a look. Right. Good, good. Um, So let's just take a shift now and and look at the other part of social insurance. We were talking about Medicare. Um, And doesn't this uh, face similar kinds of problems in social security in terms of, you know, the solvency of the system as the population grows and more services get used? Yeah, this is an interesting one because oftentimes the solvency issue for Social Security and Medicare kind of gets lumped together. And people will say, well, they're both, they're both headed for bankruptcy. They're both insolvent. It's really important to understand that the programs, the two programs are structured very differently. And the, the issues in Medicare are quite different than they are in Social Security. And, and here's what I mean by that. Uh, not all parts of Medicare are funded the same way. So part A of Medicare, which is the part that pays for hospitalization, is funded very much like Social Security is. It's funded through a payroll tax that's collected on your earnings. <clears throat> Excuse me. And it, you know, <clears throat> the, the, the trust fund pays benefits out of that checking account. But on the other hand, uh, part B, which is what funds outpatient services, is financed through uh, general government revenue and the premiums you pay, your Part B premium. Right. And the same so is true is for- free. Part uh, Well, it's, it's, it's um, free, oh. quote unquote free. I mean, you've been paying into it your entire right. working life, but yes, right. you don't pay a premium for it in most circumstances. Right. Uh, there are some limited circumstances where there might be a premium. But so Part A is facing a solvency issue right now. Uh, part B and Part D really take care of themselves because whatever the- uh, expected spending of the program is going to be Congress allocates dollars for that and Medicare adjusts the premium for the coming year. Yeah. So those just are self-adjusting. Uh, Part A has some of the same kinds of issues that we were discussing with uh, Social Security. And the interesting thing with Medicare 
part A is that um, it's actually a looming more immediate problem. The trust fund is uh, projected to be uh, empty as early as 2024, and perhaps it might be a couple of years later, depending on whose forecast you are looking at. And the big issue there is a combination of, you know, just rising healthcare costs on the one hand, and accelerated now by declining payroll tax receipts because of the pandemic-induced recession. So it's a more complex picture for Medicare. Right, right. And of course, there are more choices to make in here too. I mean, so now we have, uh, you know, traditional Medicare, um, A and B, and then now we have the Medicare Advantage plans, the, the managed care plan. So yeah, how do you consider, you know, uh, again, when, when you get, well, first of all, let's just backtrack a little bit. You know, there are certain specific periods when you can make choices about whether to enroll in regular Medicare versus uh, managed care uh, plans and the Part D drug uh, plans. So what are the things to watch out for in terms of when to enroll and what are the penalties for not enrolling on time? Right. Well, there are basically two different times when you can make these decisions. One is at the point of initial enrollment in Medicare. Uh, you know, you're eligible to enroll at age 65. And so, you know, if you're not working at age 65 um, and you're going to enroll, that's the, 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 the first big decision point in terms of what, how you're going to enroll in Medicare. As, as you just said, Ron, there's original Medicare, which is fee-for-service Medicare. You enroll in Part A, you enroll in Part B, and perhaps probably Part D as well. You might add a Medigap supplemental plan. So there's all these different you know, tiers that you would put together. Uh, the other option is to join what's called a Medicare Advantage plan. These are basically, it's like rolling all those parts into one um, and it's, it's managed care. It's usually either an HMO or a PPO. So it's a privately offered commercial alternative to original Medicare. And it, it comes with some pluses and minuses, I would say. But one of the things I like to emphasize that this is one of the most important decisions that you'll make in retirement is that when you first sign up for Medicare, whether to go with um, original Medicare or Medicare Advantage, the, re- the reason I say that is that you can move back and forth between those two options subsequently during what's called the annual fall enrollment period that runs from mid-October to early December. But there's a catch that a lot of people don't really understand. And it's this, that let's say when you first enroll in Medicare, you go into Medicare Advantage. Um, well, and then let's say later you want to go back into original Medicare. There's a, The problem with that is that, as I mentioned, most people are going to want a supplemental benefit insurance um, if they're in original Medicare, which is commonly called Medigap. And what that the supplemental um, insurance does is helps you kind of control your out-of-pocket risk um, in a variety of ways. So it's an important thing to have if you're in original Medicare, either via Medigap or some people get it as a retirement benefit from an employer or a union. But when you're enrolling in Medigap, there is a what's called a guaranteed issue window that's available when you first enroll. And that means that a Medigap insurance provider must offer you a policy irrespective of a pre-existing condition, and they must offer it to you at the most favorable rate. But that's only offer, uh, guaranteed to you at the point of initial enrollment unless you live in a handful of states that have ongoing guaranteed issue rights. If So, 
if you don't have that protection, going back to original Medicare later on could be quite problematic. It could mean that you must, you'll know, basically, perhaps from a practical standpoint, need to stay in advantage. So I've written about this extensively, and there's a lot of complications to it, but I think it's underappreciated. There's so much marketing material out there these days uh, focused on getting people to join Advantage. It's a very fast-growing component of Medicare, but I think a lot lot of people sort of get dazzled by the bells and whistles and the simplicity of Medicare Advantage without necessarily weighing carefully the the plus-minus of those two options. The, The big one to know is that Medicare Advantage is managed care. And so you're going to have network restrictions, which, you know, maybe is okay, but, you know, it's important to think at age 65 about what your healthcare needs might be at age 80 or 75 when you may have more serious issues to deal with and the physician or healthcare provider you want to see might or might not be in your Advantage plan. The other thing about Advantage plans is that the providers are free to make changes as they like in the provider network. So a doctor or a hospital that is in network at age 65 might not be at age 66 or seven. So, you know, if, if choosing your providers is important to you, you think twice about Medicare Advantage. Right, right. Yeah, I think in terms of, you were talking before about Medigap, I think the important thing to note there is that the traditional Medicare only covers 80% of your costs. So that it fills in the gap in terms of yeah, your out-of-pocket expenses. And it I think does that. It also it also puts a cap on uh, you know your your out of pocket, for example, for a hospitalization. So it, it's important way to control costs. Right, right. And then yeah, I think you're absolutely right in terms of you know the advantage plans. You know how important is flexibility to you? You know I think that that's that's a key issue, and uh, it's hard to project ahead. You know uh, at what your future healthcare needs would be, but it's important to think about it. You know and to think about. Um, uh, just, just what it is. I guess the same thing is true in terms of looking at Part D plans, right? The drug part. Right. What? Yeah. What? What are the formularies for that? Right. So exactly. So you were. That's the other thing to to spend a minute on is we were asking, you know, when can you make these decisions? So, you know, every fall there's an annual enrollment period when people can and should recheck their prescription drug coverage or Advantage coverage because the big thing is that, um, as you say plan formularies can change. That just formularies just means the list of drugs that are covered under the plan and and under what terms and the under what terms part can get quite complicated. So, you know, most of the experts will encourage people who are on Medicare to reshop their coverage during fall enrollment, but really a small percentage do it, which is not surprising because it's sort of a human behavior thing, right? We, We set it and forget it and don't want to take the time and hassle to evaluate something that can actually be, you know, fairly complicated to evaluate. So this is one of my beefs with the way Medicare is structured is that there's so much complexity. There's a lot of these sort of marketplace driven choices people need to make that, you know, they don't really have interest in doing or probably don't think they're competent to do it. So as a result of that, people wind up with ill-fitting coverage. You know, very often people will enroll in a Part D plan at the point of initial enrollment, and they never change it. You know, 10, 15 years later, they're still in the same plan, which might or might not be the most efficient from a cost standpoint or the best fit in terms of 
the medications covered and the like. So it's really, I think a big, you know, to me, it's a significant problem in Medicare is this sort of competition marketplace driven approach we've, we've moved towards. Right. And Medicare advantage keeps getting bigger every year. It's going to be half of all enrollment by the end of this decade, which is kind of shocking to think about. So it's one of the things that I think bears careful watching in Medicare. Yeah. Now, are there also, um, you know, resources that people can uh, uh, use to, to basically bounce these decisions. I know there's some Medicare counselors. There are, you right. know, in each state, there, there, there are programs uh, yes. to help, um, you know, evaluate your choices. Yeah, several to mention. One is that every state has what's called the State Health Information Program, which is uh, SHIP for short. And these are networks of uh, me- trained Medicare counselors who can help people through enrollment decisions. And, you know, you can, there's actually a website that um, we can provide your listeners with a link to where you can look up the ship in your state or just Google it. Um, but those are great places to get help. Uh, the Medicare Rights Center has a hot um, a hotline or a toll-free number. Uh, it's a New York-based organization that is very good at helping people with these decisions. Um, you know, I'll just mention that insurance brokers also uh, can be very well-informed, useful folks to talk to, people who are representing Part D plans or Part C, uh, which is Medicare Advantage. The only thing to know about there is that, you know, brokers, of course, are commission compensated. And so, you know, unlike uh, either free counseling or or fee-based counseling, which is also available, you just know that, you know, they have a a motive there that that is, you know, that is uh, compensation driven, but it doesn't mean that they can't be really helpful because it's their business to know the ins and outs of these plans. And as I was just alluding to, there are several services out there that, you know, for a modest fee, will shop your plans for you. And they they do good work. And it's, you know, it's uh, generally a few hundred dollars for, uh, you know, to to move you from soup to nuts through the process. But I I would say start with either your ship or, you know, a, a free counseling service is usually, I think, a really good way to go. Great. All right. Okay, we're going to take another break, um, uh, but don't go anywhere. We'll be right back with much more from Mark Miller. So we uh, wrap up Medicare and talk about some other things. So don't go anywhere. We'll be back. Get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at VoiceAmericaTRN or Twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN. Do you want to hear a show about football? How about football moms? What if we told you that was just a start? Tune in for Double Down with Garrett and Mack. Audrey Garrett and Jeracy Mack are moms to some well-known NFL players. Sure, they'll talk football and raising their kids to achieve greatness, but they'll also talk about community and world issues, motherhood, news, and lifestyle topics. Listen in every Monday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have you checked out Teen Wealth Radio? It's a show for teens, their parents, and educators. Hosted by Brandy England, along with regular weekly contributors, Teen Wealth Radio will cover the topics that teens need to talk about. Plus, we discuss a book of the week and a movie of the week, and each show will offer a challenge to our teen listeners that they can share on our private Facebook group page. Be sure to tune in to Teen Wealth Radio, live every Thursday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific, on Voice America Variety.
You are listening to 45 Forward. To reach Ron Roel or his guest on the program, please send an email to ron.roel at gmail.com. That's ron.roel at gmail.com. Now back to 45 Forward. Thanks for coming back, folks. Uh, Once again, I'm talking with Mark Miller, a topic expert in retirement planning. And before the break, uh, we were talking about Medicare, and I was just thinking that, uh, you know, for for many of us, we may, if we're in our 40s or 50s, we might think, well, you know, I'm far from, you know, Medicare, you know, age. Um, Do I need to know about this now? And one of the things that uh, I experienced in my own life was that there's there's almost a preview period when, especially if you're taking care of your parents, you know, or helping to take care of them you may find yourself all of a sudden being uh, heavily involved in their care. So it's helpful to know what Medicare is about because you're often working with them to make decisions about things. So um, so having said that, uh, let's just talk a bit about, uh, with Mark, about um, long-term care, how this fits into retirement planning and saving and what, what your needs are and what you need to know about that. Right. Well, I guess the thing to say here, Ron, is that um, – you know, long-term care, I think, from my perspective, is sort of one of the biggest holes in the safety net of retirement security. It's uh, the piece of the puzzle that we haven't figured out very well. You know, we have these commercially available long-term care insurance policies that have never become very popular. You know, maybe maybe 10% of the um, eligible, the target population, let's say, uh, for those policies have bought them, and that would be sort of probably households over age 50. Um, you know, Medicaid uh, is actually the largest funder of long-term care supports and services. Uh, generally speaking, it's probably by a little less than half of all long-term care is funded out of Medicaid. But, it, you know, it requires spent people spending down their assets or being low income to receive that those um, those benefits. And then some wealthier households just, you know, they basically self-insure sort of, right. if, they've, if they've been able to set aside significant savings, they just say, well, some of that is is for long-term care. So, none of that is really what I would call super optimal. From a public policy standpoint, I think the smart approach that I wish we would take would be to build a basic level of coverage into Medicare. And a lot of people don't understand that Medicare doesn't really fund long-term care. Medicare will pay for up to 100 days in a skilled nursing facility following a hospitalization, um, but that's it. It's not really for assisted living or you know a lot more longer term uh, care. So that's one thing to understand. Um, another point I just want to mention briefly is that I th- I think we're probably on the the the, the brink of a significant rethink of how long-term care services are provided in the country as a result of the pandemic and the really horrific levels of uh, illness and death we've seen in nursing homes and long-term care facilities as a result of of COVID. Um, Not to say that they're going away, but there has been a really sharp dip in admissions to those facilities this year for not terribly surprising reasons. And a lot of the experts I talk to say that they think that pattern will continue. So there's going to be more effort by people to figure out ways to uh, age in place, stay in their homes, you know, receive whatever support and services they can at home rather than going to institutional settings, which 
can be less expensive than an institutional setting. It all depends on what exactly your situation is from a healthcare standpoint. So I think we're looking at a kind of evolving, changing situation uh, in the years ahead. But I think, you know, it, the way it all sort of nets out is it, it can be a significant risk that people have difficulty figuring out how to plan for. It's, you know, it's kind of a roll of the dice, not all households or not all uh, people are going to need lengthy periods of, of institutional care, but a small percentage of the population will have a lengthy long-term care need. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's something we really haven't thought about. I mean, with the, the longevity bonuses, like, well, this is great. But at some point, I think the figure is something like two thirds of all people you now the past age 65 are going to need some sort of long-term care. As you so, mentioned, I mean, yeah. Yeah. I'm sorry. I was going to say the funding options for, you know, I mentioned saving, uh, one thing is a possibility is if you if you are able to delay your Social Security claim and boost those benefits, that provides a higher check coming in every month that could be used to offset a long-term care down, need down the road. And Social Security benefits are adjusted every year for, for inflation, so that's a good thing. Right. Um, if you are receiving a uh, or expect to receive a defined benefit pension, that income could go against a long-term care need. Then there are the commercial policies that you know that are worth at least um, you know I would say considering. So you know those are some ways. The the other is an you could consider an annuity. So for example, a deferred annuity that you buy at age sixty but doesn't begin paying benefits till age seventy five or eighty. That that's a less expensive annuity than than an immediate annuity because you're allowing the insurance company to hang on to your money for a while, but you know, a deferred annuity that starts paying at 80 also is, could be a way to fund a future long-term care need with, yeah. with the flexibility that if you don't need the long-term care, you've got some in, additional income coming in. Yeah. Yeah. As you mentioned, this is a work in progress and it's, we've, there's a lot of, a lot of holes in the system, but I know that there's a legislation now in Congress that's working its way through to, you know, set up some, you know, potential, um, you know, long-term plan for the, for the country, some, some basis for coverage. But I think you're right that this is going to end up being, part of our social insurance plan going forward. It just I mean, I think because one of the big problems with long-term care insurance is that, uh, again, it's just a human behavioral thing. People don't want to grapple with it. It's not something you want to think about. People are too interested in talking about it at a young age. Uh, it's the kind of thing that's easy to just push down the road. So the good thing about building it into uh, our social insurance system is let's say you had a small payroll tax that you started paying you know, when you begin your working life that was just being contributed to a long-term care fund. It'd be automatic. You'd most likely never even think about it, uh, but yet it would be there. And to fund some base level of a long-term care benefit uh, down the road, I, I think you would do that as sort of a base level benefit and then give people the option to add supplemental coverage if they needed or wanted it. Right. Would it be a really a very sane approach to this whole thing? Right. We don't have that much time left, Mark, but in the time we do have left, I wonder if we could talk a little bit about housing options and transitions and just how that affects your retirement needs and, and concerns. Right. Well, you know, I think for a lot of people, when they do their retirement planning, if they do retirement planning, right. a lot of people don't really do it. But, you know, it's all about the focus is on the income side of the ledger. You know, what am I doing to either save or maximize my social security? What income can I expect without focusing all that much on the budget side, excuse me, the spending side of the, of the ledger. And um, 
you know, some uh, spending items are outside of our control. You know, you're going to need to pay the utilities and pay for food and transportation and the like. Uh, but, you know, housing is an element that there may be some opportunity to control cost, either by, um, let's say, if you own your home and most the majority of people who reach this age, you know, do, you could, let's say your, your numbers aren't adding up. So, you know, moving to something smaller, less expensive, uh, could be worth considering. Uh, you, you know, let's say you're living in something relatively expensive in the in an urban core area because it was convenient to where you needed to be for work. You know, a move uh, an hour or two away from that urban core might save you a bunch of money. Uh, you know, you might even be able to extract some equity and, and sock it away in that transaction. So, you know, for a lot of households, housing is one of the most important accumulated uh, savings, if you will, or asset types. And so tapping it in retirement, if, if it becomes necessary to do so, could make all the sense in the world. And so the kind of transition I just described, I think is the most straightforward way to do it, assuming you're open to it from a lifestyle standpoint. And some people just may not want to do it. Uh, the other way you can consider doing it is through what's called a reverse mortgage, which is a way to sort of tap into your income through a reverse re- reverse loan. Um, I'm not a huge fan of them. I think they're kind of expensive. They come with a lot of fees and there can be some some risks associated with it. I think they're, uh, they can be difficult products for a lot of people to understand, but it is an option. But yeah, frankly, very few people take advantage of it. I think psychologically, people at the point of retirement are not looking to take on new uh, debt relationships, if you will, even though this is sort of an upside down loan. It just is not appealing to folks. I think people are looking for simplicity and unburdening themselves of financial obligations and complications in retirement. But I do think that housing is something worth considering. You know, a move to a less expensive location or a downsizing move may be something you want to do. There could be other reasons you want to change your housing situation. You know, if you want to get into something without that involves not having to climb a lot of steps, for example. Right. So I think it's an important dimension that's worth um, you know, giving some serious thought to. Right, right. The last piece is also just, we, we, we just touched on it, but uh, just in terms of, along with housing, sort of downsizing, sort of downsizing your career. Um, I, I guess there, there are also, there are financial and psychological implications for that too. But um, any thoughts that you have in terms of, you know, how people might, might, might think about it? I know you're not a financial planner, but in that sense, but, you know, how, how do people think about, you know, how that fits in? Well, it's, the timing of retirement and the transition from work to retirement is one of the most critical uh, turning points in, in, you know, determining the success of your retirement plan, you know, whether you're able to work to the point you plan to. So a lot of people will say, oh, I, yeah, I haven't saved enough, but no worries, I'm just going to keep working forever. Well, that could be a good aspiration, but it's not really a plan. Because right. the data tell us that about half of people, work, working people, wind up retiring earlier than they planned, either due to a job loss or it could be a health problem or the need to take care of a spouse or other loved one um, or even just plain burnout. People just kind of get to the point where they can't hack it anymore. So I always say it's a good aspiration, but not necessarily a plan. Uh but it is important to understand just what an important leverage point it can be because every additional year of work 
could help you fund a delay in that social security claim we talked about earlier. It could mean more years on a um, employer funded health insurance plan, which is generally gonna be a little expensive, less expensive than Medicare. It means potentially more years of the ability to save for retirement. And especially in the later years, uh, sometimes people are able to step that up if other obligations have fallen away, like for example, paying for your kid's college tuition. And lastly, it just means fewer net years of living from savings um, and more years living off of income. So it's one of the most important leverage points if you can, if you can pull off working a little longer. And I'm not one of these who says work forever. I don't believe in that at all, unless that's what you want to do. But you know, even just two or three years can make an enormous difference. And if it's not possible to work full time, given the way the economy is right now, you know, even finding some some part time income could really make a big difference. That's great advice, right? Well, I know there's much more to talk about, but I think we're going to have to leave it there for today, Mark, and have to invite you back for another session with us. Um, I really enjoyed it, Ron, and I uh, thanks so much for the invitation. Uh, yeah, I want to just uh, give a few minutes to uh, uh, let people know how they can reach you, Mark. Um, it's just Mark right. at retirementrevised.com. Uh, is that the best Yeah, the, an easy way to do it is just to go to the website, retirementrevised.com. There's a contact us form there. Um, and I also wanted to mention the newsletter, which is I put out uh, weekly for subscribers and sort of more occasionally for people on the free list. But I uh, also wanted to make a special offer for your listeners of uh, if you'd like to subscribe uh, for uh, half off for 12 months, you can visit there's a, a URL that we set up for a special offer for Ron's listeners, which is at retirementrevised.com substack.com forward slash 45 forward. So it's retirementrevised.substack.com forward slash 45 forward. And uh, you'll be, click that link, you'll go to an offer for half off for a year. Right. That's great. And, and I'll also, Mark, have that information on my Rebel Resources site great. and clip on the 45 forward tab. Great. Yeah. And, you know, you which I typically do in the newsletter is uh, include links to all the work I'm doing for news outlets like Reuters and the New York Times and Morningstar, as well as um, links to these retirement guides that I publish, as well as uh, just kind of curated links to other interesting articles and research that I'm seeing all over the internet. I'm constantly sifting through just about everything that comes out and the stuff that I think is particularly good and interesting, I, I bring to the attention of my newsletter readers. Great. Okay, so great. Thanks again, Mark, and be sure everyone to join me again next Monday, 12 noon Pacific time, 3 p.m. Eastern time, when I'll be talking with Carol Wallman, a gerontologist, uh, who is a passionate fighter against ageism and tell us how to thrive, not just survive as we age. So thanks again. Have a safe and productive week. See you next time. Thank you for tuning in to 45 Forward. Please join your host, Ron Roel, for another great show next Monday at 12 noon Pacific Time and 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We wish you a great week.